Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mindful Social. This week, I have a very good friend, Michael Brito. He's a digital strategist, a published author, a TEDx speaker, and an adjunct professor with 20 years of experience, and then some, helping organizations break through clutter and really reach their audiences with marketing programs. He's now VP of Digital Marketing for Zeno, where he's responsible for taking data to help his clients tell their true stories on the internet. His new book, Participation Marketing, Unleashing Employees to Participate and Become Brand Storytellers, is out now and available in Amazon and a lot of other places. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Janet. I think I've known you for years, actually. <laughs> Quite a while. <laughs> and the, the 20 years comment just makes me feel so old. Yeah, well, you know, we are old. <laughs> we are old. <laughs> it's okay. It's it nice is. to see somebody who's a millennial, who's not a millennial, and really working on getting the story across and really connecting with people. Because there is kind of a misconception that, you know, us old farts don't really connect that well. It's just not true. Well, that is true. And I mean, I think we were the kind of the early adopters of, of digital and social technologies. And so, you know, for people to have that perception is um, not, I find puzzling because we were not digital natives, although we were kind of adults when digital kind of came about. So um, yeah, that's, it's, it's interesting you say that. I know a lot of millennials who are, are very outspoken and, and connected really well. I'm, I'm friends with many of them. So it's good to see that you and I and others that we know are um, of that next generation up and doing the same thing. Yeah, I think, you know, the internet has reached everyone. And uh, the, the idea that there's really an age gap is not always true. There are people who are really fascinated about this stuff. And, and one of them is you. <laughs> <laughs> what, what I really loved about the book and uh, thank you for sending me a, a preview copy because I really enjoyed it. And I liked how you put people right up front and center. When you said, we don't talk to logos, we talk to people. Can you explain a little bit about how that works in marketing and how that's different from marketing 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely. You know, I live in, I live in Santa Clara County, um, Silicon Valley, and I go to a cleaner's that I've been going to for the last 15 years. And I don't, I know the name of it. It's town and country cleaners. Um, I don't relate to the cleaners. Um, I relate to the owner. Her name's Joanne. And Joanne's been a personal friend of mine for 15 years or so. And um, we talk and we communicate. And every time I need my clothes to be ironed or pressed or I have, you know, hemmed, um, I go to her. Uh, because I, in, I interact with her. It's kind of in our DNA to connect with people. Like we connect with, um, and it's been like that throughout history where we are, we, uh, we, we relate to others more so than we relate to a, an object or a logo or a company. And so that, that concept is, could be applied to any company, any brand, any size, because um, again, at the end of the day, people relate to each other, not to um, uh, tangible or intangibles like a company name. Why do you think marketers forget that? You know, we have, I mean, it, it depends on who you're talking to. I mean, large companies, I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's pressure from the CMO to uh, deliver results. And so when you're trying to deliver results, you're driving, you know, clicks, you're driving people to a website for downloads and for sales. You kind of miss that element of humanity. So, mm -hmm. and that's, 
okay. I mean, that's just a different way of thinking about marketing. And, you know, I think that that's, that's always going to be around because we need to justify business and justify our investments into digital and paid and PR and all these things for smaller companies. I think that they just don't know, you know, you don't know what you, you don't know. And so I think that many leaders are feel that they, if they have a good product that they're just going to sell it. And while that's true in, in some regard with companies like Apple, right. Or Google who have amazing products, you know, most products are, you know, you have to build a groundswell of, of employees and, and customers, excuse me, customers so that they can then talk about how they are using the product. And that, that then influences larger communities. Um, and that's what drives business. So I think that we just, I think that we just, you know, we're in an era right now, Janet, where, you know, where we are, are pressured to deliver results. We are pressured to reach an audience and audiences are so hard to reach these days because there's just so much madness, so much, you know, content and media in the world. And many of us have very short attention spans. Um, some of us like myself have ADD. So it's hard to, to, to be really focused at, at any one point in time. And so it makes it really difficult for marketers to, um, to really drive a personalized message. And so that, that then requires us to, you know, some people take a shotgun approach at, at creating content and, you know, using paid media in order to get that content in front of people. And sometimes it's just not as personal as it could be. Mm-hmm. So when we build those customers as advocates, like you are for your dry cleaner, then that's a really wonderful thing to get, get the customers engaged with advocating for your business. So talk a little bit about how that works with employees. Um, I should put a caveat in there that I've seen an awful lot of social media policies, for example, where the, um, the main thing that the social media policy says is don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, to the point that employees are really afraid to say anything on a company's behalf. So maybe that should be my first question is, what do we do about that mindset where the company wants to lock everybody down, not let them talk? I think that's, you know, while that's still common, it wasn't as common five, six, seven, eight years ago, right? Um, uh, actually, actually, it was more common five or six, seven, eight years ago where you had companies who were creating policies because there really was a lot of chaos. You know, all of these technologies were arising and there was some adoption amongst people and they were just kind of tweeting and sharing things that they maybe shouldn't have, like um, product roadmaps or, you know, bashing the, the, the competitors or being inappropriate, uh, talking about different things. And so companies had to tighten up the rules right away. So they created the policies years ago. You know, companies were doing that and they were publishing those policies online. And I think since then, they've kind of reeled in kind of the madness. And now they're starting to say, okay, now that we have policies, let's let's loosen them a little bit and let's empower some of your employees to talk and have conversations. Mm -hmm. And so to your point about customer advocates a second ago, you know, that's the whole point of the book. I think if you look at a company, most companies have, every company has a multitude of stakeholders, right? You have, if you're a public company, you have your shareholders, you have your customers, you have the media and, uh, and, and the analyst community. Uh, you have customers, right? Your customers are, you know, if, if you don't have customers, you don't, you're not selling anything, you're not going to be in business. And then your employees. So you have different groups of stakeholders. And when I talk about the book in general, participation marketing, it's really about finding those stakeholders that have a natural affinity towards the business or the brand and empowering them, mobilizing them, building a program around them. And so um, while this book is 
talking specifically at employees, um, the same concepts, the same thinking, the same methodology could be used uh, to, to mobilize customers, to mobilize channel partners. If you're a large technology company, you have the, the supply chain. So you, you can take the same principles and apply it to the supply chain. Um, and, and, you know, so who knows, maybe the next book is going to be about customers and, and influencers, hmm. but this book is really, it's the same mindset. It's the same thinking, which is get and mobilize people who have an affinity towards your business and unleash them to become storytellers. And, um, certainly there's a lot of caveats to that and a lot of training and whatnot, but, but that's really the, the core concept of the book. Yeah. So, and I love that idea. I like the idea of thinking of the whole thing as an ecosystem and bringing all of those stakeholders together and helping them to support each other. For example, you know, if you're on a social network like Twitter, employees and customers and everybody in the supply chain, maybe having conversations that actually help to support the brand. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you bring that up because, you know, 2011, I wrote my first book. And it was your um, smart business, social business. And it really was that concept, which you just said, which is let's figure this whole thing out internally first, right? We have Facebook kind of blowing up. We have Twitter blowing up. We have all these you know, platforms and we're all creating you know, pages and groups and handles. And there was just so, just so much chaos and not a lot of organization. And so that first book was really about how can we build systems and, and approaches that allow people to communicate with each other, right? So if you're working PR, you can communicate with marketing and you can communicate with, you know, customer service and IT. And then once that, you, you kind of build that bridge and build that ecosystem, then and only then can you, um, you know, empower them to have those same conversations externally. Mm -hmm. So is this something that we only want to find the people who naturally advocate for us or are naturals on specific social media networks, for example, to really advocate for the business or do we do employee training? That's a good question. And I, you know, have you heard of the one nine ninety model? No. I, I mean, I wrote Tell a us. little bit about it, a little bit about it in the book um, where 1% of a market or 1% of an ecosystem mm -hmm. um, will be, will be active. They'll be content creators. They'll be influencers. 9% will participate. They'll package up that con influencer content and they'll provide their own context and then share it. And then 90% will just consume. They'll, they'll lurk and learn. Um, the same concept could be that, that concept. Well, usually it's applied to uh, like influencer marketing um, can be applied to, to employees, right? There's usually going to be about 1% of your employees that are very actively, actively engaged at publishing content. There's going to be about 9%. Now, that, this number can, can, can shift up or down, but there's going to be about 9% who are going to share and, and engage conversationally. Mm -hmm. And then 90% isn't going to participate, and that's okay. So I think you start with a group of people who are kind of raising their hand to say, you know what, I believe in the brand. I believe in the product. I believe in the vision of the company. I want to participate. Those are going to be the ones that you start with. Then there's going to be people who are unsure. And to your point a minute ago, Janet, that's where the training comes in because you don't, you don't want to force people to participate if oh, they don't God. want to. So, and, and if your culture sucks and you have poor leadership, um, well then you absolutely don't want to do this, right? Mm -hmm. build, build your culture first and, and make sure that 
that there's people are communicating and there's a, there's a culture of trust and communication and, and, and engagement. And then, um, then, and only then can you think about empowering them to talk and have conversations externally. So what does that training look like? Let's say we have our, our top 9% that is already advocating for the ba- the brand and they may or may not be role models. Let's face it, not everybody is really great at this. <laughs> so even that 9% may be passionate but needs a little direction. Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of things can we do to empower people to be able to share more easily? Um, well, can you, can you ask that question one more time, just more in, in one sentence? Because I, I, I had a thought. And, and say again. How do we empower employees to be able to share? How do they know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, so I have a philosophy on training, and I think that was kind of what you were alluding to a second ago. Um, and the training is, uh, and I think this could be applied to all training. Now, I'm, I'm an adjunct professor at San Jose State, so I've been, t- I've been teaching um, young people the concepts of business-focused digital marketing, business-focused social media, business communications in general. And I've realized over the years that everybody, there are different levels of participation and, and engagement when you're training. And if you create curriculum that is focused on just one type, um, you're going to lose everybody else, right? You're just going to be talking to the folks who are kind of that type of learner, that type of person who's engaging. So in the book, I talk about um, customizing your training around levels of participation. So, you know, and it's, and it's very much along the lines of the one right? You have the content creators, you have the conversationalists, and you have the, those who are just going to learn and, and listen. So you have to first identify who's who, then you're going to have to build training that addresses those particular behaviors. The person who may just want to, you know, listen to or listen, you know, uh, subscribe to a feed of, you know, a Google alert, for example, of mentions of your company, right? They just want to know, like, what are people saying about my company online? Or maybe they just do a Twitter search to see what, what you know, what the results are. Um, they're not going to get anything out of training for how to write headlines for your LinkedIn blog post. Right. Or how to write, how to engage with influencers on Twitter, right? They're not, they're just not going to want to engage with you. So being very specific in the type of training you create is going to help ensure adoption of a program like this. Okay. So let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Um, for those people who are, maybe they're, they are the 9% and they're, they're interested in moving forward, but what kind of tools do you give them? What kind of resources can we give them to make it easier for them to share? That's a really great question. And I think that there's a lot of technology platforms that do this. And, um, you know, in the book, I write about dynamic signal. They're kind of the enterprise leader, right? They've been, you know, they've been around for a long time. They have a lot of fortune 500 companies, but they're also very expensive. So I wouldn't necessarily, recommend their tool to a smaller company um, just because they're, they're, the company wouldn't be ready for it. They couldn't scale the, the way that dynamic signal would help you scale. There's smaller companies out there and platforms. Um, one of my favorites for small companies is Sprout Social and Sprout Social does um, content publishing, right? So they do, uh, they allow you to publish to multiple channels via their platform. 
they also have a product called Bamboo, which is meant for um, an administrator or a community manager to create the content and then distribute it, distribute it or the content itself to employees, at which point the employees can receive an email or they can receive a notification and they can just simply click a button and share it to LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or whatever platform that they like. So the key is, is making it extremely convenient for people to do that. So if I'm using dynamic signal and I'm a sales guy and I'm overseas and I, you know, I, you know, I'm walking to a sales meeting, I want to be able to receive a notification about of, of a white paper or some type of a piece of content that's going to help my person, you know, decide whether or not to buy my software. I'm going to want to be able to do that quickly. You know, mm -hmm. I don't want to have to go and log into my computer and click copy and paste and click Twitter to log in or click Facebook. And then, you know, I want it to be seamless. So a lot of the platforms today allow you to do that. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. Now in the book, you have a formula um, that you talk about with purpose, positive experiences and celebrating successes. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to that formula and what it, what it really means about employee engagement? Well, I think it really boils down to the audience. And in that particular piece, I was definitely talking and referring to kind of the millennial group, right? And um, just because they're the largest generational workforce uh, in the, in probably globally, but for sure in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And they're becoming business leaders. They're becoming, big, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're making purchase decisions in B2B. They're founding companies. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing a lot. And so research really does support the fact that millennials want to have a company that has a purpose and, and they don't just want to sell, you know, markers for the sake of selling markers. They want to know that the company has a purpose, has a vision, and it's just well beyond the profit margins, right? It's, it's about making an impact in the company, making an impact to the world, to the society and whatever that is, whether it's, you know, some type of cultural movement, um, they really want to ensure that they're involved in that. Mm -hmm. um, so having purpose is important. The experience is really focused on uh, the experience that they have in their daily lives at the, at, at the company. So in Silicon Valley, you know, we are, you know, very fortunate to have companies who are buying lunch every day for their employees who have, you know, on-site massages. And I wish, I wish the company had that, um, you know, companies like Google and Facebook do that, right? They have all these great perks that make the employee experience phenomenal. Now, mm -hmm. if you're a small company, you don't have that. Just the engagement and the trust that, that managers and business leaders can have when soliciting feedback, when giving feedback, when, when letting employees kind of be entrepreneurial and build things, that is experience too. Now, they may not get free, you know, free lunch or you know, a massage while they're building a PowerPoint presentation, but they're going to have a level of experience that is comforting to them. And then they're going to want to participate. So that is purpose. That is experience. And then the other formula was, what was the last? Celebrating success. Celebrating success. <laughs> so that is, that is kind of right up your alley too, based on our conversation earlier, right? About being mindful. You know, it's, it's really about when there's an employee who does something great and even if they don't do something great but they do something that is part of their job making that celebration uh, public in front of their peers in front of their manager is really important because that is a motivator mm -hmm. right when i see that my manager is saying look let's celebrate this success together and 
you know, Michael, you've done a great job at this, or Michael, thank you for doing this. But, but recognizing that in front of my peers is very important to me personally. And so that, that is an area that I think that, that formula really hits on the culture of the company. When the, and when the culture of the company is right and, and, and moving and moving upward in, in a positive manner, that's when, again, you can start thinking about building storytellers because without that, uh, you're, not going to get, you're not going to get the results that you'd expect. Yeah, so it's probably a bad idea to have a really crappy corporate culture and then expect people to support you in a way that is really going to, you know, be very effective. I really hate my job and here we sell widgets. Doesn't work very well. Exactly. And and you know, I've seen instances where, you know, some employees would create fake accounts mm-hmm. and and bash the company, you know, publicly. So you know, and that behavior, unfortunately, is, is due to kind of a decay in culture, right? So, um, you know, I would say fix that first, and then you can think about building advocacy. Right, right. And that brings me back to that question, you know, people that have social media policies, a lot of times the reason they have a social media policy is because they're afraid that someone's going to quit they're going to get mad. They're going to go rogue. They're going to say bad things. How does a company with a good, solid corporate culture respond to negativity from employees that affects their brand? I mean, look at Glassdoor, right? Now, I love Glassdoor and I hate Glassdoor at the same time. <laughs> um, I love Glassdoor because it gives you a pulse as to how people perceive your company. I hate Glassdoor because anybody can create a, create a profile and say that they've worked for a company and publish whether they did or not mm. and publish something negative, right? It also allows for um, business leaders, HR people or whoever to create fake accounts and write positive reviews about the company. So there's no, there, to me, there's no, uh, what's the right word? There's, there's no operational, um, Oh, I'm at a loss for words at this, but th- that, that model doesn't work in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. So, so, but if you look at some companies, right. And you look at the gla- their glass door reviews, the really good companies are actually responding and addressing mm-hmm. every, every negative review on that site. And, um, and they're, they're, you know, so companies like the one I work for, you'll see that happening. You see that happening in large technology companies. Sometimes there's silence by the company, right? Where there's just negative after negative after negative after negative review. And I think my point is, is, is as a company, you have, to, you have to respond and be real, right? Because people can see through the BS. Anybody can, right? Sure. So well, you have to be authentic. And you have, but, but, but addressing the problem up front, to me, is going to help alleviate those concerns. And that, that to me, is the best approach in dealing with that. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, that really speaks to conscious business practices that you really do pay attention. And part of being a conscious business is to actually care about those employees and the overall environment. And, and most of the times, I think you can do damage control because it's fairly obvious that, you know, someone just has a grudge. Um, when people really flame you on any social media Generally, people take that with a grain of salt, I think, unless there's yeah. a lot of them and you haven't yeah, responded. I mean, exactly. I mean, we're in the era of what I call uh, keyboard warriors, right? Where you have a lot of people 
who are very open and honest and say things that they would say online um, that they wouldn't necessarily see in person. So that is something also to consider, right? I mean, we're, when people are mad, they're gonna just kind of go out there because they can, right? Whether or not anybody's listening, the fact that they're getting it off their chest is, is helping them, whether mm -hmm. or not it's good or bad. So, so that is something that companies really, really have to deal with today. And trolls are a big deal. They are. Yeah, they they're really are. Deal. And they're, they're very annoying too. And they're annoying, down with trolls. Yes. <laughs> so talk to us a little bit about balancing out um, PESO, the paid, earned, shared, owned model. Can you talk a little bit about how we balance that out in our marketing with Great. advocacy in mind? Great. So PESO, not the currency with our brothers and sisters south of us. Um, it is an acronym to your point of, of paid, earned, shared, and owned. And it really is a way of talking about integrated marketing, right? It's, it's having um, a consistent story and telling that story using different channels, right? Because there's several data points that show that customers or prospects need to see or interact with a piece of content um, three to five times before they buy, which means when they're driving down 101 and they see an ad, when they go to a web page, they see an ad. When they search for something, they see a search ad. When they hear a conversation in the office, there's a reinforcement of that story through word of mouth. So that's really what it boils down to. Now, and, and if you take that into consideration that, that trust in advertising, trust in content coming from brands, isn't that high on the scale, right? If you empower advocacy, whether it's customers or employees, and you use the power of the brand to amplify those voices across paid, earned, shared, and owned, then all of a sudden you're surround sounding your prospects, your customers, your stakeholders with stories that are more trusted than the ones that you can tell yourself. Mm. So there's, there's a very important distinction here. It's, it's, it's not that you're surround sounding your customers with branded content, which is still important. You still have to do that but you're layering on top of that employees' perspectives um, and you're surround sounding your, 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 your prospects with that, that is when you drive business value. That is when you drive clicks to the website. That is when you drive purchase. That is when you drive downloads. Because to my point, when we first started this podcast, people trust each other, right? They don't trust advertising. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and amplifying those stories also gives a lot back to the employee as well, or the client. If, if a client tells a great story about your brand and then your brand promotes it, then the client is thinking lots of good thoughts about you and they're sharing it with their friends and they're sharing it again and again. So you get that kind of snowball effect that you can't get with another ad alone. Yeah, very true. That is, a, that is a very true statement. There was something in the book that I thought was really interesting. You talked about Adobe and their center of excellence. Can you kind of expand on what that is and how it works? Because it's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, Adobe's a cool company. I have a lot of friends that work there. Uh, they used to be my client many years ago. And Adobe, I mean, it's a huge company, right? They do so much. They do, uh, they have their creative suite, right, for, for, for uh, the creative kind of group. Um, uh, Illustrator, Photoshop, InDesign, all these things. Then they have their analytics, you know, products for marketers. Um, they have their document management, like PDFs and Acrobat. And so they have so much. 
And I think because you have so many products, because you have so many different types of customers, you, you have to build um, internally an ecosystem so that the folks who are selling Adobe Photoshop and Illustrator and the creative stuff are speaking the same language to their customers than those who are talking to the marketing side or those who are talking to the small business owners. So um, the, 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 the center of excellence from what I understand and from my interviews is, you know, it's an internal group who is responsible for training. They're responsible for finding the right technology platforms for activation. They're responsible for setting the overall company strategy around social media and digital. And then from that, they, they allow the different product groups and the different regions to kind of really just build their, um, their communities and build their platforms um, directly, right? So the center of excellence enables each of these groups to um, you know, build programs and campaigns um, to engage with their audiences, but there's consistency, there's governance, there's training to support each of those teams. And, mm-hmm. and that's important because back in the early days of, of social media, back when I like to joke around when like Al Gore invented the internet. Um, and that's what I have on my LinkedIn actually. Um, it's, it's, you know, you had multiple people from a company creating a multitude of Facebook pages, a multitude of Twitter accounts, you know, and, and all of these, you know, platforms that it, there was so much duplication and nobody was talking internally that companies then had to start being a little bit more smart and intelligent about how they do that. So centers of excellence isn't a new concept. It's, it's actually, uh, you know, things that, it's a, it's a concept that, that's been talked about for many years, but it's, it's still important because it allows different groups to ensure that, oh, we want to talk to the consumer audience. Oh, well, there's a group that already does that. Mm. So Vexen is going to help connect the dots there. Oh, I love that idea because that really creates that internal advocacy that, that can really build. I think a lot of the things that I hear from employees about why they don't share and advocate for, advocate for the company more is because they're afraid they'll say the wrong thing or they're afraid that, uh, you know, what they have to say isn't important or that, you know, it just isn't, they don't have the content and they don't know what to say. So they don't say anything. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, and that's key, right? That's the key with, with technology because technology is going to ensure that there's kind of already a, a library of content right? That, that is already approved, right? Mm -hmm. That's already been moderated. And if I get a notification or an email that this is something I could share, then I'm going to feel comfortable sharing it, right? I'm not going to, you know, and then there's other platforms out there that would allow you to um, suggest content. So I'm an employee for a small company. I come across a white paper and I thought, you know what, this might be good to share. I could then send it to my team or whoever's responsible for managing the content and say, Hey, I think this is something that we should share. The person gets a notification saying, oh, yeah, this is a great piece of content. Let's push it out to everybody, Mm -hmm. right? So that kind of alleviates that particular concern of, um, you know, being afraid to share content that's not approved. Who knows? Maybe someday we'll get more than 9% of people that actually share. (laughs) I think that eventually that will happen. I think as as more, as the the you know Gen Z, which is which are my daughter's generation, I mean they don't like email, they don't like computers, they just want their device, right? They're sharing everything, so I think we're going to have different problems when they when that workforce comes in, because um, you know they are 
um, we're, they're going to probably be sharing a little bit too much, right? So it's going to kind of be flipped on its, on its head um, or maybe not sharing the most appropriate things. Mm. So I think that that problem will be, uh, you know, maybe that, that'll be my next book. <laughs> yeah, your next book should be on personal digital branding, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite the challenge for the, for the youngers. My son is 18 now. And uh, it's been very interesting seeing him kind of get into social media and start to expand a little bit. And yeah, it's, it's going to be a challenge because there's not as much of a filter as there was with previous generations. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael, I really enjoyed the book and I, I do highly recommend it. I think there was a lot of really great stuff in here and, and I thank you for coming on. Uh, why don't you tell people how they can find the book, how they can find you and anything sure. else you'd like to share? Well, I just revamped my website. I'm super stoked about it. It's Britopian.com, B-R-I-T-O-P-I-A-N. And that's really all about me and what I do. Um, from there, you can click through and, and find information about the book. Or if you're interested in, in getting the book, just Google participation marketing. It's like the second result, not the first mm -hmm. one yet. Um, or go to participationmarketingbook.com and you can get kind of an overview of the chapters. There's a, a PowerPoint presentation at the bottom that you can, uh, you can download as well. So, uh, you know, that's, and then I'm Bertopian on Twitter. So I'm very, you know, conversational. So happy to chat with you and answer any questions. And, and Jen, I just want to thank you for, for having me. It's been great catching up and I really appreciate you having me on your show. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you and I always learn something new, which is always, that's great. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome.